Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In this episode, we're talking about social protection and the Sustainable Development Goals, the coronavirus pandemic, and now the triple crisis of food, energy, and finance has set back progress towards the SDGs. Social protection is seen as an SDG accelerator that can contribute to many, even most, of the SDG targets, from ending poverty and hunger to improving gender equality and access to health and education, and even tackling inequality and climate change. But can we make enough progress in the time left to rescue the SDGs? My guest today, Nenad Rava, is talking about how social protection interventions can catalyse change and progress across the Sustainable Development Goals. Plus, it's the seven-year anniversary of our host, socialprotection.org. After this, we'll be hearing from Mariana Barboni about the platform's most exciting features, so stay tuned for that. My guest today is Nenad Rava, Head of Programs at the Joint SDG Fund. Welcome, Nenad. Thank you very much. Let's start off by talking about the goals themselves. The Sustainable Development Goals are ambitious. There are 17 goals and 169 targets to be achieved by 2030. In broad terms, how are we progressing towards those goals? Well, before the pandemic, the progress was decent. Almost no country was on track to achieve all SDGs, but there was movement. It was slow, but it was in the right direction, at least on average. However, the pandemic changed it all, and for the first time, we have a reverse trend, which is now further impacted by this global triple crisis, food, energy, and financing. There are major differences in impact between the pandemic and the triple crisis, but even with the triple crisis, there's no country in the world that has not been affected. So we need acceleration of the progress on the SDGs more than ever, which means having even more ambitious initiatives that genuinely induce systemic transformative change which is what we now refer as rescuing the SDGs. So we collectively, UN stakeholders, need to rethink how we do things, both in terms of how we provide the supports to governments and national stakeholders, and how they actually engage into a process that we call acceleration of the SDGs, which is not new and it's not unprecedented, because if we go back to the MDGs, Millennium Development Goals, it really happened that in the last couple of years, there was a major acceleration of the progress on the MDGs in certain countries. So that sort of informed or inspired the idea of accelerating the SDGs because it is possible because it happened before, but the approach has to be drastically different. The goals and targets represent, you know, very nice. It's a tidy, it's a compact summary of global development challenges and what the international community felt that we needed to achieve or would look like good progress by 2030. But of course, development problems are complex and interlinked. There's a need to move on multiple fronts in order to make progress. Can you talk us through the need for a systems approach to achieving the SDGs and how to think about how they can inform each other in order to work? Thank you. So, so maybe just a bit of a background. So first of all, the, the social problems that SDGs are referring to are not new. So the SDGs are primarily the uh, global framework that all countries agreed upon, and that represents specific framing of what progress on certain of those socioeconomic issues would mean in terms of actual results, a shared framework 
is the understanding that social problems are complex. And that implies that they are interdependent, meaning that when you change one element or a subsystem of the broader system, most other elements or subsystems change as well. So you move one one part of the, the whole mosaic and then other parts move as well. So that means that you cannot address these issues in isolation from each other. Rather, you need to understand how they are linked, and we call that linkages, systemic linkages, and what kind of interventions might create one of the two possible effects. One effect is, let's call it, quote-unquote, positive. That means synergies. We make progress on one, and then there is progress on another one or more. But there are also hindering effects, which we call trade-offs, which means that you make progress on one, but actually the progress on another one is worsening. So the essential thing is to understand the complexity when you talk about social problems. The linkages really requires that we ensure that our interventions into these models of change are really informed by what I call systemic theories of change. Unfortunately, a lot of times when you talk about theories of change, it, it ends up with you know, log frames on steroids. Whereas we need to understand the complexity, try to anticipate this overall model of change, and then develop specific strategies for our interventions that would have catalytic effect, meaning with a relatively small effort and investment into specific leverage points in this whole complex mosaic, we produce results at scale, we move mountains, so to say. And while doing that, we minimize the trade-offs. The prerequisites for this is that there is sufficient level of system literacy and really bringing diverse stakeholders into a co-creative dialogue because these kind of things cannot be solved merely by experts, that there are no solutions that you discover. You really need to work in the local context uh, with all these kind of cross-sectoral interventions, complexity, and the ways how you go about working at the SDGs. You've talked here about the need for synergies to achieve catalytic effects. Can you give me an example of what that might look like with some of the goals? So we talk about working on system change, but changing the whole system is never the actual intention because changing the whole system would require a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of investment, and that's not really necessarily deacceleration. Instead, we look into these entry points, leverage points for change. You know, these are kind of pathways through change of a system. And then we look into how we can, in relatively short period of time, change this small thing. And then there's this catalytic or kind of, you know, multiplier effect across. So we had this situation in Mexico, actually, in one of our programs, which supported a change of an article in the Constitution of Mexico. And that created ripple effect. And then this, this ripple effect should not be, and usually is not, sectoral. So the change of the article in Mexico was about professionalizing domestic care. But domestic care is not sectoral issue. It really cuts across everything. So with this, you try to address social protection, SDG1 in general poverty. You address gender equality because it's mostly about women. You address inequality in general. You address decent jobs. That has an effect on improving 
education because there's more savings, you know, for kids and everything that improves health and well-being and, and so on and so on. Let's focus now on social protection. How does social protection feature in the SDGs, I guess, formally, but also how do you and others think about it contributing to the SDGs as a whole? The very first call for proposals that the Joint SDG Fund launched in early 2019 was focused on social protection and leaving on behind, so the focus on the most vulnerable, and specifically on integrated social protection. And that was a result of long process of consultations. The reason we did that was exactly because there was an understanding that social protection is, is a sort of master accelerator of the SDGs. From the very beginning, we had a list of all different kind of possible big themes and social protection really came on the top. But unfortunately, that's the only thing that the kind of UN and broader stakeholders agree upon, that social protection is a major accelerator. There's very little that people agree on besides that. We don't have a kind of generic understanding shared by most actors involved in social protection on what are the specific contributions of social protection to specific SDGs. So we could probably find a link between social protection and every single SDG target, 169. It's obvious that social protection relates to SDG 1.3 target, which is about universal social protection. This is kind of the, the core business, if you wish, of social protection, universal floors. There is a strong impact, obviously, on gender, but there's a trick there because we often take gender for granted. We say, well, of course, if they are universal social floors, it's going to address the gender issues. But the problem with that, just to illustrate these linkages, is that we don't have universal social floors. It's the progress towards universal social floors that might or might not have an effect, positive or negative, quote-unquote, on gender. And there are obviously social protection projects, interventions, that do not particularly take into consideration the gender issues. So we could say there is a link between 1.3 and, and the whole goal on gender, but it does not tell us really what's happening in a particular case in a particular country. Because you could say, well, eventually gender will be addressed in 10 years. The same situation is with the uh, SDG on inequality. It's similar. Reducing inequalities as the G10, it's similar because we kind of take it for granted. Of course, social protection reduces inequalities, but does not mean that the particular link between what we do and specific target under inequality is really reinforced and catalyzed. There is a series of SDGs in the space of social context, hunger as the G2, health and well-being as the G3, education as the G8, where we assume there is contribution and positive contributions, synergies, with working on social protection, but what are the specific links and what are the assumptions we are making when we identify these links is really very diverse. So for instance, you could be saying a cash transfer that reduces hunger is a positive contribution of social protection to reducing hunger. But then if you really understand the complexity of this issue, this can actually undermine a long-term improvement of hunger. Because if it's only about you know, giving cash to people or meals, that might not trigger the broader system change that would ensure that these people in a couple of years 
are empowered and self-sustaining through, you know, having a job or, or, you know, having a more decent environment, family and everything else. So just to give you another example is with the climate change. Well, obviously, social protection does not reduce CO2 emissions. It's contributing by changing something in, you know, in households that then has a kind of secondary effect on how people, you know, what kind of energy sources people use, their resilience and so on and so forth. But then what's the actual relationship there is very difficult to capture. As you've just described, social protection has been envisaged as an accelerator for the achievement of many of these targets. So can we get into some examples of how this works in practice, where you're seeing particular catalytic interventions that relate to social protection going on to support progress towards some of these other targets and goals? It is important to emphasize that we as the Global Fund really avoid prescriptive approaches. Basically, our role is to pose kind of systemic design challenge, saying, here is certain funding, and you tell us how you will use this funding in the broader sphere of social protection, addressing vulnerabilities across life cycle, in your particular local context, with the government leading, that will then catalyze up to 10 SDG targets. That was our approach. And we provided funding for 35 joint programs in 39 countries, just above $100 million of the total budget. And we've seen that the response to this systemic design challenge was, one, very diverse, and two, of course, different different countries, but many countries really produced results that we were not even expecting. So you have a wide spectrum from, for instance, Vietnam, where the focus was really on integrated social protection, universal floors, and drastically increasing the coverage and quality of social protection benefits. So that that would be like the more kind of conventional social protection. But then again, we can go to other parts of the world. And then we have, for instance, Ecuador working on informal economy of youth helping the transition, which is not social protection, but contributes to social protection directly. Uh, by the way, our funding was on social protection and leaving on behind, so we allowed this flexibility. And then you have in Albania, an integration of services at the local level, at the district level, primarily between the typical social protection services and health services. So they were not increasing the coverage. They were not bringing new people into the social protection. They were putting things together, integrating them to improve efficiencies. And also they were mobilizing additional resources from the government, increasing the fiscal space. In their case, because they were very holistic, they basically addressed a whole spectrum of vulnerable population from gender to children to migrants and so on and so forth, disability as well. So. For them, the biggest challenge was how to articulate that they basically influenced almost all SDG targets, or most of them, certainly on on social and economic aspects. And then you can go to Argentina, and the focus was primarily on childcare or Brazil, further scaling up their early childhood brand from 700,000 to to basically 2 million people. So it's a wide spectrum of all different kinds of examples, difficult to have a global narrative. 
But when we draw the line in two years of our funding, a minimum of 147 million people were brought into the social protection system or their previous benefits and services improved in quality and access. That's in two years in the context of the pandemic with, let's say, relatively small amount of investment of the total budget for these joint programs being uh, around $100 million. You were talking before about the targets for gender equality and how social protection programs need to be designed to contribute to that goal. It doesn't just happen on its own. How have you looked at that challenge? Ultimately, all of our joint programs, all of our investments put women empowerment in the focus. Some work exclusively on women. So the main focus in Mexico was to make social protection work for women. And that basically translated into focusing on domestic care, which then needed to look into this particular issue from all different kinds of perspectives. First, professionalizing domestic care. Secondly, making sure that these women do become integrated into social protection, existing one and then future expansions, and that there is sufficient funding to support the two the professionalization and including them into social protection. And then it ends up being that most of these women are also indigenous. And Mexico is a large country. So the focus was on five states, which are the poorest ones. So there were new strategies developed for each of these states in alignment with the national approach to domestic care and in line with the change of the constitution that basically said that these women must be covered by social protection. So we worked at multiple levels from multiple perspectives to bring domestic care into the focus and then this have catalytic effect for the social protection, for gender, for inequality, and also for decent jobs. Speaking of complexity, the UN family is itself a fairly complex set of actors with slightly different objectives and mandates. What are the challenges for coordination and collaboration across the UN system on social protection? And how do you go about getting everybody onto this same page? When it comes to the UN collaboration on social protection, there was a recent report that looked back into the last couple of years. So the report on UN collaboration in social protection identified a number of areas in which things can be approved. And that really includes a shared understanding of social protection and its potential to accelerate the SDGs. And then bringing a larger number of UN entities together around this understanding to co-create different kinds of strategies. So it's not about ILO, UNICEF, or maybe UNDP and WFP anymore. It, it's really much, much broader. And that has to happen at the country level under the leadership of the resident coordinator, because the resident coordinator is this new function, at least new full-time function, part of the UN development system reform more broadly, which is about facilitating coherence in the UN country team at the country level. And the assumed result of more coherent UN country team, so UN at the country level, is more consistent and coherent an effective support to government and national stakeholders to produce more coherent and effective policies and financing to accelerate the SDGs. So in a way, what we need to do is to do the homework, 
make sure that you and entities bring together their understanding, their expertise, their networks and partnerships around the coherent idea of what social protection is, how it contributes to the SDGs, and what does it mean in a specific country context. And that also requires then pooling the funding for these kind of interventions, which is where the Joint SDG Fund comes in, because we provide funding for this kind of specific joint actions where UN entities come together at the country level under the guidance and leadership of the resident coordinator. Whereas UN is just the, the convener, UN is not implementing the SDGs, it's the government. But UN needs to make sure that the support from different UN entities is not overlapping or inhibiting each other, but actually creates different synergies while recognizing, of course, that different UN entities have different comparative advantages. So, for instance, ILO would always lead on extending the social protection coverage, but it's not necessarily ILO who would work with ultra-poor to address the multidimensional poverty issues that are at the foundation of some of the problems that social protection experience in the poorest countries. What's your feeling about whether it will be possible at this stage to achieve this kind of acceleration and rescue the SDGs in the way that you've described? I am cautiously optimistic about the progress on social protection accelerating the SDGs for two reasons. First is that we demonstrated through these 35 joint programs in 39 countries that you can really produce a catalytic impact in only two years, even in the context of the pandemic, and accelerate the progress on the SDGs. So we now know there is clear example that it is possible. But I'm cautiously optimistic because we lack funding. Social protection is a priority in almost every single strategy, be it from UN or donors or governments, or at least in most of those, but the funding is not attached to that. Funding from the donor community, and then also domestic funding in terms of the fiscal space. So my main concern is mostly by this trend to take social protection for granted. Nenad Rava, thank you so much for joining us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you very much for this opportunity. This podcast is a production of socialprotection.org. In September, we celebrate the establishment of the socialprotection.org platform, which turns seven this year. So I'm delighted to welcome Mariana Balboni, coordinator of the socialprotection.org platform, for our quick wins today. Welcome, Mariana. It's really a pleasure to be here today. So in honour of socialprotection.org's seventh birthday, I set you the challenge of choosing the three best features, your favourite features of the platform to share with our audience. So what have you chosen? Well, Joe, that is not an easy task, but if you really put me on stop to do so, I'd like to highlight the work our platform did to coordinate and share knowledge on the social protection response to COVID-19. We knew immediately that we had a really important role to play to help share information and lessons between countries and practitioners 
as the crisis unfolded. From March to October 2020, we did a lot of work in collaboration with DFAT, GIZ, and IPCIG. We organized 32 webinars with 26 social protection stakeholders, and we attracted more than 6,000 live attendees. This is very impressive for our work. The task force that went for the six months also mapped and disseminated pieces of content across various formats, such as news, blogs, and various other publications through a dedicated weekly newsletter and an online community. And at the end, we developed a dedicated COVID-19 page, as many organizations, gathering further resources and a curated list of key readings that continues to be updated nowadays. In partnership with researchers from the IPCIG, we also created a database of social protection responses to COVID-19, focusing on countries in the global south. You can download the entire database and use it to create interactive dashboards and figures. To close this task force, we had the event, the global e-conference, turning the COVID-19 crisis into an opportunity, what's next for social protection. We organized more than 72 sessions with different partners, and then they took place in four days in three different time zones. There was more than 2,000 people registered people from more than 100 countries. So it was really an amazing work. And I think there's a lot of members of the community that is still highlighted how important it was to have that space for sharing at that moment, because it was, I think, the only big event that held the whole community together in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, the beginning at least in 2020. Yes, the knowledge gathered and disseminated through socialprotection.org over this period represents the most incredible public good, and it's all still there, freely accessible. What else have you chosen for us, Mariana? Well, I think I have to highlight our webinars and our webinar series, which are our flagship activity. We're very known for them. Over the years, we've hosted more than 250 webinars with 70 partner organizations, it's really a huge community behind all this task. We regularly get over 100 viewers join in real time, but I think our record was a webinar with almost 700 participants last August. It was about graduation approach in responding to COVID-19 shocks in Bangladesh. One of the great strengths of the webinars is that a wide range of partners use them. They come to us to launch new research, to facilitate discussions, promote their work. It is one way that you can really see the work of the platform as a knowledge broker and a connector for the social protection community. And so for those of you who don't know about these webinars, socialprotection.org hosts them weekly, usually on Thursdays, featuring, as we say, experts from a wide range of agencies, government officials from across the global south, civil society figures, if you sign up at socialprotection.org, you can receive regular updates on upcoming topics. And if your organization is interested in contributing a webinar and filling one of those sessions, you can email the team at contact at socialprotection.org. What's your third pick, Mariana? I guess I have to give a shout out to our Crisis in Context online community. You might not know that our platform hosts a number of communities of practice that we call online communities. When you're logged in the platform, members can create and join different communities and find specific curated content and interact online. 
a work of collaboration and exchanging that it's very important for the community. The Crisis in Context Online community is one of our most active ones. It was launched in 2017, and it has over 316 members. The group is consolidating itself as a one-stop shop for practitioners and researchers working in the humanitarian and social protection fields. The community also organizes informal hangout sessions for real-time discussion. If you're interested, you are welcome to join the sessions every two weeks on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. UTC. The link is in the episode show notes. You know, in some ways, keeping communities active and engaged is one of the biggest challenges we have. But we find that when our partners and members use them as an active place for exchange, it can work really well and it pays off. And if I can squeeze in one more thing, I'd like to highlight our e-courses. For example, in partnership with the ILO, UNICEF, and UNDP, we host the e-transform program, which is the virtual component of an innovative and very collaborative learning initiative on the implementation of national social protection floors in Africa. We're very proud of e-transform our first e-course. We are also developing an interesting series on adaptive social protection building blocks with GIZ that is a work in progress. And I'll add, if you're relatively new to this field, you might like to check out socialprotection.org's micro courses on the fundamentals of social protection. They're short, they take between three and five hours on average to get through and they're self-paced. Most of our courses are in English, but we also have some in French and Spanish. So all our microcourses now are available in Arabic. Like everything in our platform, these courses are for free. Of course, that's not all. I'm very proud of the podcast feature, you know. Oh, thanks, Mary. <laughs> Thank you for all your support. And you know, we have our communications and social media activities and all the work we put into our databases and knowledge management our blogs, there's so much work behind the platform, but I'm especially proud of the way our team always finds a way to support the community. The team is the jewel behind the platform, definitely. Yes, anyone who has ever reached out to the socialprotection.org team for help knows that is true for sure. Finally, Mariana, for the evaluation nerds amongst us, you've just published an article on the impact of the platform to date. It's always a real challenge to evaluate a resource like this. We know South-South learning and sharing is obviously really important, but what's not always so obvious is how to define success. So what does your paper say? So socialprotection.org was established at the request of the G20 Development Working Group back in 2011. They asked for an effective knowledge sharing platform to facilitate the generation and transfer of knowledge on effective social protection approaches, drawing particularly on the experiences of middle-income countries for the benefit of low-income countries. And we argue in that article that we met the challenge. Socialprotection.org has become the neutral, unbranded, and common space where information can be easily shared and found. Um, bringing together contributions from different agencies, NGOs, national and international think tanks, as well as government bodies. I think the article is a good historical piece to register a knowledge management uh, success case. I'd say the socialprotection.org platform, it is a success of knowledge management, knowledge sharing, 
even capacity building, we've did a lot on building networks. Uh, so the article draws and registered that experience very well and also explain well how we are doing it and through this lens of knowledge brokering. We do have some challenges which are strengthening the collaboration in those communities of practices is not easy. So how to really engage the discussions and have important exchanges. At the end, you know, the, the real objective, the final objective of the platform is to reach out to policymakers to support them, elaborating and monitoring policies. We don't talk to them as much as we'd like to. So one of our challenges and, and then some strategies we, we draw in the article is how to assess their needs. What is it lacking policymakers to engage on those discussions? Is a different, they need a different forum, they need a different approach. What, what can we do? So we talk a, a lot about that. Thanks for doing this, Mariana. So in case you missed it, that website again is socialprotection.org. That's the one. Come and check out our huge knowledge repository, sign up for our newsletters, swim around with us in social protection knowledge. Thank you, Mariana, for joining me today. Thank you, Joe. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then. Mm-hmm.